picking up where we left off a few weeks ago in Acts 18. We obviously took a bit of a diversion last week. I hope you didn't mind that. Um, But we're back in Acts, and we're going to continue on through Acts. So we're in Acts 18, and we're reading verses 18 to 28. Paul, having remained many days longer, that is in Corinth, took leave of the brethren and set out out to sea for Syria. With him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sincrea, he had a haircut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Then he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he didn't consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I'll return to you again, if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he, want, when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This passage is a bit of a bridge passage, bridge from where we were a couple of weeks ago, into what happens in chapter 19, which is all about Paul in Ephesus. And so I've entitled this, Paul has a haircut, sails home, and we meet Apollos. And so we're going to see, firstly, Paul's trust in Priscilla and Aquila, how he gives some responsibility in his mission. And we see why Paul had a haircut um, before sailing for Ephesus and continuing on to Jerusalem. And then how he then moved out into the church. But I also want to spend some time this morning thinking about Priscilla and Aquila and about Apollos too. So at the start of the narrative, we see Paul still in Corinth. We learned a couple of weeks ago that he first encountered Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth after they'd been deported from Rome by um, Claudius. Thank you. The name went from my mind. I was going to say Augustus, but it was Claudius. They had showed hospitality to Paul. They'd worked alongside him, making tent material. And they also supported the mission work in Corinth. And Paul was in Corinth for about 18 months while these two, Priscilla and Aquila, helped him and supported him and helped develop the ministry there. And so clearly there were people as the word, as we'll come to see. And so much did they engender Paul's trust that when he sailed from Corinth, he took them with him. He thought, these are going to be useful somewhere else in the church. They've proved themselves in the role that they've played alongside me. So he took them with him, invited them to come back uh, along the journey to him. And then we learned that the first stopping point for Paul was Sancria, which was the eastern harbor of Corinth. It wasn't actually very far from where they started. Basically, you had two harbors in Corinth, And then you've got the Isthmus that flows between the two of them. And so you've got the Western Harbour and the Eastern Harbour. And St. Crea was the Eastern Harbour. So he hadn't got very far. But he decided to stop and have a haircut. 
Why did he have a haircut? And why do we need to know about Paul having a haircut? <laughs> Scholars are divided. David's on the right track. Scholars are divided uh, about what this actual vow was, but most agree it was a Nazarite vow. Now, if you remember, going back to the Old Testament, Samson took a Nazarite vow, and he didn't have his hair cut for the whole of his life except once when a certain lady caught him and took his hair, put his hair in a in a vice, for, no, in a in a in a weaving thing, and then later cut it off, and, and he lost his strength because a Nazarite took a vow not to have any of their hair cut because they were giving their life to the Lord, and it was a sign of it. And so Paul, scholars believe, was taking a Nazarite vow. So did he, was this the end of his vow or the beginning of his vow? Well, most scholars believe it was the, the beginning of his vow because the ending of a Nazarite vow was that you went up to Jerusalem and made sacrifice. And he was on his way to Jerusalem before carrying on. So he took a Nazarite vow. He decided he wasn't going to cut his hair. So he had it cut first, very short, in order to not let it grow too long before he got there. The other thing about a Nazarite is that they weren't to take any form of grape, neither the fruit, nor the juice, nor wine, as long as the vow, uh, they were under the vow. And the whole purpose of it, and they also weren't allowed to touch a dead body, even if one of their own family died, they weren't allowed to touch the dead body. And the, the purpose of it was to set themselves aside for a period to seek God. And this was the outward sign that they were set apart, that they were giving themselves over for a period in order to find out, to seek God for wisdom, to seek God for a greater revelation, to seek God for greater understanding, to seek to know more of God. That's a good thing to do. I'm not suggesting we all stop having our hair cut or grow our hair long or whatever until, until we have an encounter with God. But it is good to spend time from time to time setting ourselves aside to seek God. And maybe sometimes there are things that we also need to set aside. Maybe we set aside TV. Maybe we set aside alcohol. Maybe we set aside something else. All of these things are not bad in themselves. But there are times when God leads us to seek him more deeply. And in order to do that, sometimes we need to set things aside to make time, to, make, to schedule in that, that period where we're going to set ourselves aside to seek him. And who knows what God will do what God will reveal, what God will bring to us as we take time out of our normal lives and set ourselves aside to seek him. Certainly Paul felt that this was required and perhaps that was setting him to come back to Ephesus because when he did come back to Ephesus, he spent another two years there. But he was seeking God as to what the will, his will was for him in the future. In the early church, of course, all Christians fasted twice per week once on Wednesdays and once on Fridays. And that was part of their rhythm of prayer. And perhaps we all need to consider what our rhythm of prayer is, how we will set ourselves aside to seek God during the week, during our time. It's easy to go from Sunday to Sunday and, and, and you know, lay things aside and just get on with the busyness of life. But I believe we all need to find that rhythm of prayer and rhythm of seeking God, either for a short time or for perhaps a longer time, so that we can seek to know him more, to hear from him more, to, re- to, to receive more, to give more, to serve more. And so Paul takes this vow, he has his hair cut, and then he lands in Ephesus. 
And at this point in Acts, Paul's time in Ephesus is only short. He goes into the synagogue and he starts to teach. And they say, we want to hear more. And he says, I haven't got time now. I'm going to Jerusalem. If God wills, I'll come back. Uh, But Paul does leave Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus to look after and teach the new believers. Now, he was only there for a couple of weeks. So it was pretty, pretty fast work that he established a church there in two weeks because he left Priscilla and Aquila to look after these new believers who had come to faith. And he installed them in this newly established church while he returned to Jerusalem, promising to return. And so clearly by this time, he was confident enough in their leadership to leave them in charge of the church there. Aquila and Priscilla were natives of a region called Pontus, which was in the north of this whole region, whereas Ephesus was right down the south. But that wasn't a problem to them because everybody spoke Greek, and so they would have been able to communicate and see, um, look after the, the church there. And it was while Priscilla and Aquila were in Ephesus that a fiery young preacher by the name of Apollos comes across their path, as we read in 24 to 26. And we're told that Apollos was from Alexandria. Well, what's the significance of Alexandria? Well, the significance is this, that it was the foremost city in the whole of the empire for learning. They had a library in Alexandria that had over 400,000 books in it, which was quite a lot in the time. It was a place of scholars where they came came together. The Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Scriptures, was translated in Alexandria. It was a place where just such a person who knew the Scriptures could arise. And Paulus had had obviously taken on board all of this truth and all of this learning and and had encountered Jesus and was seeking to make it known and to to use the knowledge that he gained in this town of Alexandria. He using seeking to make known the truth of who Jesus was. But his understanding was not, or knowledge was not complete. I love the way it's phrased. Priscilla and Aquila heard him and took him away aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. In other words, you're deficient. You need to learn a bit more. Yeah, you're telling the truth, but but there's more to go. We all need, have some more to, to learn, another way to go. But, but nevertheless, they don't douse the fire. I would suggest that probably, since it mentions the baptism of John, that, that, that Apollos had been baptized in water, but perhaps not been baptized in the Spirit yet. And they explained to God, to him, the way of God more accurately. Question for us is, how do we feel when people bring correction in our lives? For most of us, correction is not easy to receive. The thing that gets in the way is our ego, our self. We may take it as rejection, or, or, or we may be offended. It may offend our self, sense of self-worth. It may simply mortify our pride. But we see none of this with Apollos in the text. The ability to take correction is a sign of maturity. And the reality is that we all need correcting from time to time. Because I don't know about you, but I know I'm not perfect yet. It may be a small adjustment we need. It may be a major challenge. The key to all of this is, do we have the heart of a disciple? For a disciple is someone who's always learning, who's always willing, 
who's always open, who's on the journey, and who's willing to be corrected by a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, by the word and by the Holy Spirit. A disciple is someone who's submitted to Jesus and is willing to learn in every way so that they become more like him. And if we really want that in our lives, we'll be willing to be challenged, even where it hurts. And the key when anyone brings correction, even if we don't agree with it, is to listen, to examine our hearts, to allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction concerning anything that needs changing and to make the changes. For those bringing correction, it needs to be done firmly but gently. And my desire for all of us is to see us grow up together into God, to become like Christ, so that we can more ably demonstrate the gospel. The stakes are too high for us to take our bat and ball home when we are corrected. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And part of friendship is to correct one another in love because we want our friend to be the best them that they can be. So let's be open to bring correction in a gentle spirit, but to receive correction that we might all grow up together in God and not take our bat and ball home. So back to the narrative. At this point, after correcting Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila disappear from the narrative. But what do we know from, about them from the New Testament overall? Well, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he was still with Priscilla and Aquila. And so most people believe that he wrote uh, 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. By the time Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans, Priscilla and Aquila were back in Rome because he addresses them in the greetings passage. When Paul wrote to Timothy, his very last letter, written not long before his death, he asked Timothy to greet Priscilla and Aquila. And most scholars believe that Timothy was in Ephesus. So we've got Priscilla and Aquila, they start in Corinth, they go to Ephesus, they go to Rome, they go to Ephesus. This is a couple who are willing to go where God wants to put them. They're willing to serve the church of Jesus Christ. It's not about their ministry, it's not about their profile. It's, Paul, where do you want us to serve? Where can we best support and encourage and build this thing called the church. And so you see them bouncing around all over the place, wherever they're needed, wherever they're required. And by the time they get back to Ephesus in the end, it's Timothy who's in charge of the church, not them. They're just there to serve, to look after one of the houses, house churches within the city. And so we have this couple who are an example of faithful ministry, willing to serve wherever God put them. They functioned as leaders together. And it's very unusual in the New Testament to have a husband and wife team cited so specifically as they are. And so we see this joint ministry where it's not just a Priscilla, it's not just a Quiller, it's them working together to build, to strengthen, to encourage the church. And so in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila are congregation leaders in a much bigger church in the city of which Timothy was the main leader. What happens with Apollos? Well, we find out from the text that he wants to go to Archaea. Now, Archaea is the whole region around Corinth. So he's going where Paul has just come from. And he wants to go and encourage the church. And, uh, and we find out that in 1 Corinthians 3 that Paul refers to the fact that Apollos spent time in Corinth. And he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God has been 
has been making it grow. And Paul's emphasis in 1 Corinthians 3 is that he and Paulus were not in competition with each other for the gospel. Quite the opposite. Even though the Corinthian church were being partisan, trying to set up divisions between them, saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Christ. Paul says, no, we're partners for, for, the, for the kingdom in the gospel. You see, there is no competition or should be no competition in the body of Christ. You and I are all individually gifted. We each bring something different to the church. Of course, later in Corinthians chapter 12, this is exactly what Paul is, is, is emphasizing in terms of spiritual gifts. No person or gift is more important than another, since we're all required, all needed to make the body function. Paul isn't in competition with Apollos. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. It's not about who does the best work. It's about everybody contributing what they have in order to cause the thing to grow. And so I want to encourage you this morning. What's your gift? And are you using it? Because you're as important in the body of Christ as I am. Or as any other person. As the great speaker on the platform. We're all as important to one another and to the body of Christ. There's nobody less of less status. And we all have a role to play. We all have gifts to bring. The important thing is that we know what our gift is and that we use it to bless, to build, and to encourage the church. And if you don't know what your gift is, perhaps it's time to seek God and find out. Maybe you should take a Nazarite vow. Maybe you should ask for prayer from the prayer team. Maybe you should talk to your home group leader. The reality is that we all have something to bring. We all need to be using our gifting to build the body and to bless others. So what's your gifting this morning? And are you using it to encourage and build the church and to look to take the, king, the gospel to the world? So back to Paul. Whilst all this is going on in Ephesus and Achaia, Paul returned to Jerusalem, then to Antioch, and then to Galatia and Phrygia to encourage the churches that he had previously established there. And in chapter 19, we find him back in Ephesus, building upon his previous work there and upon the work of Apollos. And we'll come back to look at Ephesus in more detail next week and what Paul did there and all, the, all that happened while he was there. But I just want to sum up now with a number of things that we've touched on as we've looked at this passage. Firstly, we see the faithfulness of Priscilla and Aquila. They've accompanied Paul. They've supported him. They've picked up the work in Ephesus from him. They've brought correction to Apollos so that he can more ably preach the good news. God looks for faithful people. Life in the body of Christ is not just about gifting, but about willingness to serve faithfully. And the various rewards in the New Testament for believers are not reserved for the great, but for those who have used what they had faithfully to bring about a return for the kingdom. In the parable of the talents, everybody was rewarded who took what they had, whether big or small, and brought about a return for the king. All of us have something. But the question for all of us, are we faithfully looking after and... and, uh, encouraging within ourselves the gift that God has given so that it might bring a reward for the kingdom. God looks for faithful people. God looks for faithfulness 
and God rewards faithfulness. And we see the example of Priscilla and Aquila as a faithful couple who served without looking to actually um, pursue their own ego. Secondly, we see the need of correction and adjustment. And we said that the willingness to take such is a sign of maturity and that none of us are exempt in this because we're all on a journey. And the goal of our journey is to be like Jesus. And if you feel that you've arrived at that goal, then you're more holy than me. In the meantime, allow God, allow others to correct and adjust so that as you get further along the road on the journey, you will increasingly become like Jesus, whom we have worshipped this morning. Allow the word to correct you. Allow the spirit to correct you. And then thirdly, we see that there is no competition in the body of Christ, that we all have something to bring. And there are no exceptions here. We all have unique gifting. We can all use it to bless others and build the body. And I want to encourage each one of us this week, look for the opportunities to bless others through the unique gifting that God has given you. Be faithful. Have the heart of a disciple. Seek to know and use the gift that you have. And don't forget, the prayer team are willing to pray if anyone doesn't know what their gifting is or for anything else that's been raised this morning. So I want to encourage you. This is, as I said, a link passage. And we've picked out some things as we've gone along. We've seen some of the characters who uh, play a part in the, in, the, in the book of Acts. But let's be people who are willing, who are faithful, who are looking to encourage, to bless, and to build the body of Christ. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the teaching of your word. And I pray, Lord God, that it might indeed bring change, challenge, and correction to us, that we might become more like Jesus each day. May you bless us, Lord. May you give us your guidance. May you richly encourage us. And may you, Lord, strengthen us, that we may more ably be able to do the work that you've called us to do. Amen.